read Romans chapter 8, verses 19 through 22. I'll begin in verse 18, though we considered that last time, but just to give continuity to the text, which is before us, verses 18 through 22, that the focus of the sermon is upon verses 19 through 22. And hear God's word. For the earnest, excuse me, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. And let us pray together. Our gracious Father in heaven, we are thankful as ever for your word. We thank you, O God, that here is a word which speaks to us honestly. It speaks to us plainly. And yet it speaks to us, though it is something we know, yet a mystery still, that we are trying to grasp, we are trying to comprehend by faith. We pray now that having read this word and about to have... It preached to us that greater light might be shed upon the mystery that it might indeed be grasped by faith and have a transforming influence on our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last time we looked at what I called the question of suffering. Intentionally, I said it is not the problem, but it is the question of suffering. Well, here I would put before you something which is even uh, greater in some sense, greater in the sense that here is the thing which is perhaps the most perplexing question or issue that mankind has to face every day and that mankind has always had to face every day. Something which is greater than uh, the question and, and, and the issue of personal sufferings, and that is simply, why is the world as it is? What is the explanation for the state of the world? You see, that takes a man beyond himself and his own trials and difficulties. That in itself is a very great and perplexing question, but something which is even greater, indeed far greater, is the question of the world. Why is the world as it is? And to ask this question takes into account the tragedy of this world, the sorrow of this world, to call this world a sad and a sorrowful place. This is something which has Uh, as I said, uh, faced man for all time. It is a question that has occupied the minds of men, indeed the great minds of men for all time, the philosophers, the great thinkers and theologians, even scientists of late are weighing in on the question, why is the world as it is? What, What is the... Well, what is our outlook on the past to be? What's our outlook on the future to be? And so on. It seems the hope of the modern scientist and the modern political thinker is... That the world was bad, but it's getting better all the time. So that's the promise not only of the scientists, but of every politician. The promise always of a better world. Acknowledging at least in such a promise that the world isn't as it should be. You see, every man acknowledges that. Men are at odds with one another. There are calamities and difficulties that come in endless procession. And the question here really is twofold. Why is the world like this? And is there anything that can be done about it? Is there any hope for this world? Those are really the two questions that men are always grappling with. Again, questions of the past, questions of the future. Will things ever get any better? 
But this is an issue, let us not be surprised, that the Bible deals with. It is an issue that the Bible, indeed, is of great help to us concerning. I'm always thankful for the Bible's honesty, for its realism about the condition of man and the world. It deals with man and creation as fallen. Indeed, we saw that in Sunday school. The condition of man and of the world in which he inhabits is that which is fallen, not standing upright, but lying down. A shattered world, not a glorious one. The Bible deals with both questions. It acknowledges the question of the past and the present. Namely, it tells us that the world is not as it should be. But it also tells us what God intends to do about it. It answers, in other words, the question of the future. Is there any hope for this world? And so, and so the Bible is of great help to us. And I agree with Martin Lloyd-Jones when he says that it's only the Christian who is able to grapple with this difficulty, with this perplexing issues, uh, this perplexing issue, I mean, of living in the sad, fallen world. No one else is able to do so. People who are not Christians will either be given to a false kind of optimism and hope for the world based upon nothing, building their, their house upon the sand, or else a kind of uh, uh, resignation and pessimism. The unbeliever is, belongs in one or two classes. But only the Christian can look at this world with a brutal honesty and realism, and yet in the midst of that remain hopeful for this world and cheerful even about his present condition. Only the Christian can do that. Such then is the theme of the verses before us. Paul has just said in verses uh, 17 and 18, in essence, that the glory that awaits us is not worthy to be compared with the, the, the present suffering. Something, well, in a sense, you could say something terrible has befallen, even the sons of God for the time being. But something glorious awaits them. That's the teaching. You have the optim or you have the realism about the present and the optimism about the future. Clearly, the Apostle Paul is willing to admit the reality of suffering for the Christian. Only he wants to be clear that the reality of suffering must be seen in light of a greater and a better reality. The coming glory to which the present sufferings cannot compare. But having stated uh, the lot of the Christian in this world in this way in verses 17 and 18, he really has introduced something that now he wants to unfold. And that is, what of this present suffering? What does he mean by that? How should we understand it? How does he define it? What of this world? You see, we hear the present suffering and we think of the little trials we face each day. But Paul is speaking of something far grander than that. He's talking about the context in which we live, the world in which we live. That's what he means by the present sufferings. That's what he goes on to unpack in verses 19 through 22. What of this world? In which suffering and pain are the norm and happiness is the exception. Does God's plan of redemption have anything to say about that? Indeed it does. And seeing this will help the Christian to grasp something of the grandness of the glory that awaits him. Not just a personal glory, but a cosmic glory. The glory that awaits the believer includes not only himself, but the whole of the world in which he lives. Yes, the world like him is in a state of decay and corruption. It is fallen. But the day is coming 
When a great renewal will occur, not only, not only in the believer, but in the world in which he lives. And it is to this which he looks forward as well. Not only his own redemption. And I wonder if we're used to thinking in these categories, but the redemption of the world in which he lives. Such indeed is the Christian hope. And so here is the teaching. We could divide it in this way. Number one, creation has been subjected to futility or vanity in the older translations. Verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Well, that's the first thing. I'm taking the verses slightly out of order, but let us see. Verse 20 introduces the main thought. Everything else, verses 19, 21, 22, and even beyond that, verses 23 through 25 are merely an expansion of this thought. The first question we have is what is meant by creation? Simply the world that God has created. What uh, what was what we read of rather in Genesis chapter one, the world that God made, the world that he spoke into existence, the world about which he pronounced all things were good. Indeed, even uh, man who was very good, though. Uh, That isn't really in view here. It's not man. It's the world, the world which he declared to be good, the world which in which everything was perfectly suited to its purpose, its intended purpose. Things, let us see, were working exactly as they should. Everything was designed by God and suited to promote his glory. And so it did for however long that world existed. Especially the world was fashioned in such a way that. The glory of God would be revealed in the king of creation, man. The world was suited in such a way that man might inhibit, uh, inhabit it and there glorify God all his days. It was uh, the temple of man suited for man to glorify God. And it is this that Paul says that has been subjected to futility. The habitat of man, the world. Which leads to the next question, namely, what is meant by futility or vanity? We think of uh, the writer to Ecclesiastes saying, all is vanity. Well, it's, that's the thought here. All is vanity. Everything is futile. What, what does he mean when he says that? Well, he means something like this. And if you think of what I was saying, the, 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 the creation was like, things were made with a purpose. Everything was suited to, to promote its end, namely to glorify God. Well, all of that has been frustrated. It's been disrupted. Things, as Dr. Gaffin once said in class, things don't work like they should. That's that's the thought. Their purpose has been frustrated. You, you know that you know what I'm talking about. It's the frustration we experience every day. And so Earth now, instead of being a paradise for man to inhabit, as, as it was in the beginning, a place of blessing and untold joys now works against man at every turn. That's what the thorns represent. Man is working the world, but the world is working against him. Things are not working like they should, and man is keenly aware of this. The world now, instead of being an arena of of man's own happiness and blessing, becomes now the arena in which his punishment for sin is known and felt all of his days. That's what we read in Genesis chapter 3. Cursed is the ground, God says to man. 
But let us see from the standpoint of the world that this is degrading for the world, not just for man, but it's degrading for the world too. The world, let us see, is suffering on account of man and his sin. The world is groaning and longing for its own deliverance. Verse 22. But how did this come to pass? Not willingly, Paul says. We're still in verse 20. Not willingly. It wasn't the will of man. It wasn't Adam and Eve who wanted this to happen. It wasn't the creation who wanted this to happen. Neither wanted this to happen. Neither wants it now. Both uh, the world and man, uh, if you like, are doing all that they can as they're groaning and longing for future redemption and deliverance. They're doing all that they can to undo the sad effects of sin. But they're being frustrated and thwarted at every turn. Try as they might, the world and man cannot make this world a better place. Cannot restore it to its original glory and to a state of paradise. The reason is because it wasn't the will of the world, nor was it the will of man. Nor even, I would go further, was it the will of the devil, though it was. No, it was the will of God. It was the Lord who subjected it. It was subjected, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, that is God himself. It was God who cursed the world. It, it was and is God who is every day revealing his righteous indignation and wrath against this world. It was the Lord who cursed the ground and the whole of the world and the whole of humanity on account of the sin of Adam. It was the Lord who punished the whole world. So that we see both in the garden and then in the fallen world and in the world that is to come, that the fate of man and the fate of the world are tied together. That's one of the underlying thoughts, not only of Romans chapter 8, but of the whole Bible. The fate of man and the fate of the world are tied together, such that so long as man obeyed, the world would be to him a place of blessing and paradise. But once he disobeyed, it became a place of punishment and frustration and futility and vanity. The wrath and curse of God pronounced in the garden, resting on man and the world ever since. It's been subjected, Paul says. It's in a state of bondage, of decay, or bondage of corruption. Verse 21. Things uh, not only don't work as they should, but they work against man. And even worse than that, everything is subject to death and decay. Things are always getting worse. Things are always breaking down, leaving us with the sense constantly, all is vanity. Leaving us with this terrible sense, the world is not as it should be. Now, I hesitate to illustrate this, but I could give a very, a very simple illustration of this because, well, I, as I say, all of us are, confront this every day. But I had an experience recently that really brought this home. Uh, I, we have a soccer goal in the backyard, and uh, the net needed to be set back up. And I bought uh, the hooks to set the net back up, and I set it back up. It was all in place, and then the thing fell over. Because at one of the crucial joints in the metal, it had completely rusted out. And now this goal that I had hoped to fix and have ready for the kids to play with again is now lying in the backyard in ruins. Now that's a small picture of what the world is like. We are trying to fix it, but we can't. And it's lying in ruins. It's fallen. This is what Dr. Gaffin says, not in his classroom lectures, but... Uh, in, in, in an essay he wrote on the suffering of the present life, he says, the sufferings of the present time must be understood 
as the time of comprehensive subjection of the entire creation to futility and frustration, to decay and pervasive and ever-aiding weakness. That's what the sufferings of the present time mean. They mean, in essence, living in a world that is cursed by God. That's what he's saying. In a world of futility and frustration, we're suffering for the present time. Why? Well, because the Lord put the world into a state of bondage, and now we have to live in such a world. Indeed, there's no other explanation for why the world is as it is, why the world never seems to get better ever. Any progress that is made, I'm not saying there's never progress. I'm only saying any progress that's ever made is lost. I am saying that. And so there's a cycle of decay. Yes, I grant there's a cycle of renewal, but there's also a cycle of decay, and it continues throughout history. Why? Well, not because the world wishes to be like this or because we as men have yet to discover the system of the world's deliverance. No, it isn't that. It is because of he who subjected it. That's why things rust out. That's why things fall apart. That's why the world lies in a state of ruin. It's the wrath and curse of God that rests upon the sinful world. And he's yet to lift it, if I could put it that way. That's the only explanation. It's the only one that takes into account the facts as we know them and as we experience them day by day. And I would ask you before I move on to the second point by way of application. Do you or do we appreciate the tragedy of this? Not just are you frustrating and grumbling and groaning all the time, but do you appreciate the tragedy that the world is as it is? Do you have a sense that it isn't as it should be? You see, the unbeliever says that and he's speaking like a fool. But the believer, when he says that, he's actually speaking out of a true theological understanding. He has a sense of what Adam lost. He has a sense that the world has indeed been cursed. Do you, let me unpack that just a little bit. Do you realize that the world which was meant to be the arena for man's obedience... The arena of worship, the temple of man in which the glory of God would ever be manifest. Now, in that purpose, is frustrated all the time. Is that not something, that thought, not that things are breaking and, oh, that's really annoying, but the thought that the glory of God might have been manifest at all times, that was lost. Does that burden your soul? Does that make you groan along with the world? Longing for the world to be as God originally intended it to be. Oh, the tragedy the Christian thinks to himself. That the world should be a place of sin and misery. The world which God made to be the temple of his glory. Oh, the the tragedy that this world has now become a place of God's wrath and curse. When it meant to be a place of his blessing. And oh, that it might not always be so. Oh, that creation itself should be delivered from all this and be restored to her former glory and brought into her future glory. So that the result, as a second point, is that creation, this is the first verse, verse 19, creation is waiting. It's longing for its deliverance. This is what he says. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Look at how he puts it here. He says, what creation personified, and creation, I'll just say as an aside, 
I was amazed in, in reading for the preparation of the sermon that the long catalog of lists that some of the commentators gave of the many, many times that creation is personified in Scripture. I'll just tell you, it's often personified in Scripture. And what creation personified is looking for primarily is man's deliverance, not its own. Primarily it is looking for the redemption of man. It is thus aware that as man's fall was its own, so too will man's redemption become its own. So it's looking, it's waiting for the revelation of the sons of God. That's what he says. Isn't that an interesting and yet a very fitting way of putting it in light of the prior verse? He doesn't say it's awaiting the redemption of man. It says it's waiting the revelation of the sons of God. But didn't we just read that in verse, verses uh, 17 and 18? That the sons of God... Though they suffer now, though they are heirs now, will soon be revealed for what they are. The glory of God will be revealed in them, Paul says, verse 18. The sufferings of the present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that should be revealed or shall be revealed in us. There will be a glorious revealing or unveiling, Paul is saying. The glory of the sons of God will become manifest. When will it become manifest? Well, Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 3 that the life of the Christian is now presently hid with Christ in heaven. But the day is coming when Christ will be revealed and we with him. And what will be revealed is his glory and our shared glory with him. He being the son of God, we being the sons of God. He is the firstborn of many brethren. That's how he'll appear. Not just the firstborn, but the many brethren. And what Paul is saying is that the creation is longing for this, this glorious unveiling, this glorious appearance of the sons of God along with Christ. It's looking for it. Look at how he later puts it in verse 23. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the spirit, even we ourselves, even uh, we ourselves grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. The adoption is. We're already adopted, but Paul is just saying the same thing in a different way. It's when the sons of God are revealed for what they are. Presently, it's concealed. The world doesn't regard us now as the sons of God, but one day it will. One day it will be put, it will be made clear. But did you notice the strong language? He says it's an earnest expectation, verse 19. So too, it's an eager waiting. The world isn't just biding its time. It's not just waiting in a state of resignation. It, it, it is. Well, ever since it was subjected, it's like it's uh, it's like it's standing on its tiptoes or craning its neck. It's longing to see something. It's in a state of earnest expectation. I can't wait for it to happen. Paul is saying that's what the world is like. It's sitting on the edge of its seat, if you will, looking for this glorious day. It can't wait. It's restless until it should experience this. And the reason is a third point that creation is able to do this. We find in verses 20 and verse 22. First of all, because when God subjected the world to all this, he did this in hope. You may have noticed I didn't read that when I read this in the course of the sermon a little earlier. For the creation was subjected to futility, verse 20, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, I stop there. But now I add the words in hope. And so God subjected it. Yes, he subjected the whole world, but not without hope. 
Indeed, in the very act of doing so, he planted the hope or the seed of hope for future deliverance. Deliverance primarily for man. For his seed would crush the head of the serpent. We read that in Genesis chapter 3. Oh, but here's the picture. Think of creation on that day. And ever since that day, creation has looked for this. Craning its neck, wondering, longing for what this would mean for itself. Would man's deliverance spell that of the world? It must, thought the world. For where is man redeemed supposed to live? Is he just meant to live in the, in the air? Or would God's purposes for man at creation ever be realized? Would man ever have a world of his own to inhabit and live for God's glory? Man who was redeemed. Is there any promise in all of scripture for a new heavens and a new earth? One that would resemble what God did at creation for the benefit of man redeemed and now glorified. Of course, we know that there is. That is the very language of scripture. A new heavens and a new earth. Scripture is full of this promise. It's full of this hope. And creation is aware of those promises and it awaits their fulfillment. Not just the redemption of man, but the new heaven and the new earth, the redemption of the world. So that Paul can say in verse 21, he said in verse 19, the creation is earnestly waiting for the revelation of the sons of God. But he goes further, verse 21, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of The children of God. And that is the reason the creation is eagerly waiting for the revelation of the sons of God. It's because creation too will experience its own deliverance on that great day. Not apart from man's deliverance, but as a result of it. So that creation looking for man's deliverance, verse 19, sees its own, verse 21. And thus we realize That as God was the one who subjected the world and put it in a state of bondage, only he can deliver it. But the promise of scripture everywhere is that he will. He will not, in other words, allow his great purpose in the garden to be frustrated. No, he will gloriously realize it, even as the sons of God are revealed on the last day and brought into a state of liberty. That is the language of verse 21. The creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. It will share in their liberty. It will share in their glory. And thus we see that salvation seen as a complete whole, as including the totality of God's plan and purpose, must include the whole cosmos. Romans chapter 8 is about, as much as anything, it is about the plan of God, the purpose of God. What is God accomplishing in salvation? Well, he's accomplishing not only the glory of man, but of the, of the world itself. There is, uh, if you like, the doctrine of glorification perfected. Not only man glorified, but the world. A glorified humanity inhabiting a glorified world. A new heavens and a new earth. That is the plan of God perfected. The plan of God completed which has been revealed in Christ. Not only the salvation and deliverance of man, but of the world. That is the great end in view of salvation. That is the plan of God for his sons and for the world. Cosmic renewal. 
But let us see it's something future. It's not something present. You'll never grasp the teaching of these verses if you say, well, I'm looking for it now. No. Paul is saying, this is something which is placed decidedly in the future. It's not something we know and experience today. We don't know it yet. The creation is longing for it. It's looking for it. Until then, the world we now live in is groaning, Paul says. It's in the pains of childbirth, so to speak. It's seeking to give birth to something glorious, something greater. But until that day comes, that day being the last day when the sons of God are revealed along with Christ, it's in the pains of childbirth. For we know that the, the whole creation groans and labels with, labors with birth pangs together until now. You see, he says, until now. And, and, and he might have said the thought is implied, until then. That is, until this earth gives birth to something better. Until God delivers it, until he redeems it, until that point when the present sufferings give way to the future glory. So we will be in a world that is subjected in bondage to futility and decay. We may not like it, but we cannot change it. Only God can deliver it. And he will. But that leads me as. A last point to spell out three practical implications of this doctrine. Most obviously, first, let us realize the world in which we now live is going to be redeemed. It's going to be delivered. The apostle says that the world itself knows this. The world is aware of it. It's keenly aware of it. It's earnestly looking for something glorious. Here's the question. Do we know it? The world is looking for its own deliverance. Are we doing the same? Are we earnestly and expectantly looking for the redemption and the deliverance of this world? Are we looking to use the language of scripture for a new heavens and a new earth? Do we see why the Christian outlook is characterized more than anything by hope? A hope which is always described with intensity of feeling, not a passive resignation but an earnest expectation, an eager desire. That's the first point. At the same time, while this kindles the same kind of hope in us, an eager expectant longing, as a second point, it tempers our hope for the present or even for the future, so long as that future stops short of the great end in view, the last day. The revelation of the sons of God. The world in which we now live is cursed. It is subjected to futility. It's in the bondage of corruption and decay. There is no promise in scripture of a future golden age or whatever you want to call it. No, the teaching of the Bible is here said in plain terms. Until Christ returns, our lot will be that of the world. It will be that of suffering. It will be that of futility. It will be that of longing and expectant hope. As he says in verses 23 through 25, not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for that, what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Oh, we're looking for something great. We're looking for something glorious, but not in this world. In the next, this tempers our expectations for the present. What we're looking for takes us 
entirely beyond the scope of anything we know in this age or this world. Such is the thought which the apostle expresses in another place. Second Corinthians chapter four, verses 17 and 18. He says, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, we don't look at this world, Paul is saying, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, again, this world, but the things which are not seen are eternal. That's what the Christian is doing. He's looking for the world to come. He's looking for the glories and the promise. Of the new heaven and the new earth. He's imagining. He's craning his neck. He's standing on his tiptoes imagining. What it will be like for a glorified humanity. To inhabit a glorified world. A new heavens and a new earth. And seeing it like this. The original point is supported. Verse 18. I consider that the sufferings of the present time. Are not worthy to be glory. uh, Compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Oh I see what's coming the Christian thinks to himself. Even as he's made to suffer for the present. And I see that such things cannot compare. But finally. This teaching as a practical implication. Clarifies the nature of the present sufferings. What does Paul mean by the present sufferings? The lot of the Christian for the present. They are described or defined. Let us see. And I've said this many times. But let me unpack the point now. They are defined, we discover, in a surprisingly ordinary and mundane way. The sufferings of the present time are surprisingly ordinary and mundane. Merely to live in this world is to suffer. That's what I'm saying. That's what Paul is saying. The world is cursed and you have to live in it. Welcome to your life of suffering. You have been subjected, along with the world, to the same futility Bondage, corruption, and decay all the days that you will live in this world. That is your lot. That is what the present sufferings mean. Let us see. uh, That is what suffering meant for, for our Lord Jesus Christ. That when we speak of his sufferings, we must speak of them comprehensively. We must not confine his sufferings to his cross, though they are epitomized there. It's there that we see them in their pinnacle, even in their glory. But he was obedient to the point of death. Well, we could change the phrasing slightly. He suffered to the point of death, even death on the cross. Oh, but all his life was one of suffering. Horatius Bonar in the Everlasting Righteousness says, and I like to quote him uh, here, that all of his life from the cradle to the cross was a life of suffering. Jesus was always suffering. He was always bearing his cross. That's why it's such a fitting metaphor, by the way. Jesus doesn't just say "You, you need to be nailed to the cross. He says you need to bear it. You need to carry it. You need to go to the cross. You're suffering even then. Jesus Christ being born into this world was made to suffer the whole of his life up to the point and to the extremity of the cross. The shorter catechism speaking of his humiliation says he underwent the miseries of this life. That's exactly what I'm saying. He was exposed to the indignities of this world, the infirmities of the flesh and so on. From the moment of his uh, conception even before his birth, to his cross. The whole of his life from the cradle to the cross was one of humiliation. It was one of suffering. And do we see why it was so? Why we can speak of the miseries of this world being the miseries of Jesus Christ. 
is because of the nature of the world into which he was born. He was, in that sense, given over to the sufferings of the present time along with us. He entered into our lot. He bore our infirmities. He suffered along with us. And it's in that same sense that we are said to suffer with him. That's really the thought here of Romans chapter 8. We are suffering with him even as he suffered with us. Not that all will suffer the pain and the shame of the cross along with him. Some will. Some have. The apostle Peter, for instance. But thank God that's not what he means. He isn't saying every one of you is going to be nailed to a cross. I don't know about you, but I thank God for that. But he is saying that every one of you, if you're a Christian, if you're one of Christ, you will suffer along with Jesus Christ. You will, along with him, suffer the infirmities and the indignities of this world. You will, like him, tread the same path of of sin, uh, of living in a world of sin and misery and sadness and sorrow. But to do so along with him, as Christian people... Uh, gives all that the Christian now suffers a new and glorious complexion for the sufferings that we endure, all of us, for the present time. The sufferings which are are our present lot are said to be sufferings, not in the abstract, but sufferings along with Christ. Insofar as the Christian is walking the same path and going to the same place. No, not all will be martyrs. Not all will suffer great things for Christ, but all will suffer with him, all who are truly his. For the believer is made to tread the same ground of sin and misery, of pain and futility. But as he does this along with Christ, the promise is this, the outcome is glorious. And it is in that sense that the Apostle Paul says, if children then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him that we may also be glorified together. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And do you believe that? Amen. Let us go to the table together.